right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time that. Right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Well, that happened on Saturday. KU lost to Iowa State a lot to a little. 58-7 to was the final score. I'll be honest, like, I, I haven't been ultra confident in KU covering the spread in some of these games. I thought KU could actually cover the spread in that game because I thought it was too many points. Turns out... It was barely enough points to cover in the first quarter because Iowa State got a big and they uh, held on for dear life after that 28-0 quarter and ended up winning 58-7. to With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I don't really know what to do. I guess that's my theme from the weekend. I don't know what to do with these sports things that we just saw. Late night in the fog. It's a scrimmage amongst each other. How much weight do I put into that? I don't know. Uh, KU just lost by 51 points to a team who's a lot better than them. How much stock do I put into that? What do I do with that? What takeaways do I have from that game? I I don't know. And here's the deal. It seems like to me it's just from a coaching standpoint, like one of those games you hear about, oh, we're going to bury the football. We're going to throw away the tape. We're going to burn the tape. That's probably what's going to happen here. And I'm sure because I, I noticed this after the game on social media. There was... A contingent of people who were very much, you know, we just got to stick with the process, the typical, we just got to wait it out. This is a long game. You can't expect it to change overnight, and it's not. And then there was a contingent of people like, I'm, I'm sick and tired, man. I'm sick and tired of hearing that same thing every two, three years. And so I, it's a two-edged sword because I get it. I, I understand that it is tiring, and it's, it's tiring for me to come in here and, you know, tell you that it is a long process because I'm trying to maintain a level head about it um, and, you know, tell you that I still do think Lance Leipold is going to turn this thing around. I still believe in Lance Leipold and it's still very early on in that process. And that's what I believe to be the case. But it is really freaking hard to stay that committed when you lose by over 50 points to a team who was not quite where you are now but they were the other bad team in the Big 12 like you are, what, five, six years ago? Yeah, that's that I think is, is the worst part is you just see how far. And, and if you're trying to be overly optimistic, you can, you can say, well, hey, look how, you know, look how quickly they rebounded. Look how quickly Iowa State rebounded. Um, Baylor is another good example. Baylor was terrible, like truly terrible. And obviously there were some horrible things that went on uh, – you know, with with off off the field uh, that surrounded the big Baylor turnaround. But even if you want to look at Baylor in basketball, where there hasn't been much controversy, but they've turned it around and, and reached heights never seen before. I still think it's possible, but it's it is kind of annoying. I don't know. My my thought is, I guess every any fan, like even the fans that are like, I'm sick of this. I'm you know, I don't I I can't bother with this anymore. Whenever, whether it's Lance Leipold, who I still have a great deal of faith in, 
or whomever, whenever KU football gets back to a point where they're not this, where they're going to bowl games, which I really believe is possible, I've seen KU football turn around once in my life. I've seen Baylor basketball turn around in my life. I've Locally, I've seen the Kansas City Royals go from posting a record number of consecutive 100-loss seasons to back-to-back AL pennants and a world championship. I've seen these things happen. And so, I and I, I really, and maybe I'm rooting my, for my prediction a little too much, but as soon as it, it the writing was on the wall that Les Miles was going to go, Leipold was the guy I wanted right off the bat. So I, I really am staying strong with Leipold. But I can't sit here and blame anybody. And look, I, I want to be clear. I can't sit here and blame anybody who's saying, I'm sick of this, mm-hmm. this is ridiculous. And if those same people in a couple years, or if in three years, KU has you know is won six games and they're going to the Fort Worth Bowl or whatever the Bulls are going to be called by then, <laughs> I can't blame them at that point for jumping back on the bandwagon because this has been, this isn't, you know, K, this isn't KU basketball where you mm-hmm. go from great and then you have one season where all of a sudden you're a four seed in the tournament. Okay. Nobody can jump off the bandwagon then, but if you're off the, off the KU football bandwagon now because of how bad it's been and embarrassing it's been for the last decade and you want to jump back on in a couple years because they've won six games and they're going to a bowl game, I've got no problem with that. Because it if this was the first year of a new coach and, you know, KU was consistently going four and eight, five and seven, then okay, that's different. But it's this is just a continuation of what we've seen for a decade. Yeah. And so for that standpoint, I get it. Um so for me, you know, like I said, I'm still gonna have like the Try to keep that level head of, hey, this is a long game. You had the shortened off season. You have the spring ball. But here's the deal for this show. KU goes on a bye this week, and you would hope they're going to correct some things. You're going to get extra time in preparation for the Texas Tech game. And it's going to be homecoming for KU. Texas Tech, even though they just went to West Virginia and won, is still one of the bottom two, three, four teams in the Big 12. Because you're coming off a bye, because you're playing them, uh, where they're not going to be coming off a bye because it's homecoming, this still is one of your most winnable games remaining. It's probably this and the West Virginia game are the most winnable games. And maybe you'd say West Virginia is number one now because that would be at the end of the season when, in theory, you'd be most improved. Where is that game? That's in Kansas and so, it's senior so both day. both those games are in Lawrence? Correct. Okay, that helps. So, so maybe you'd argue West Virginia. But regardless, Texas Tech is one of the two most winnable games remaining for KU and given that this one is off a bye and that you did beat Tech two years ago that you did only lose to Tech on the road in Lubbock last year by three I think you have to have maybe more confidence in this one than even the West Virginia one so I'm giving KU the benefit of the doubt from the Iowa State game against a really good team a team who was pissed off coming off a couple of tough losses where they out-yarded their opponents. They have one of the best defenses in the country. You played bad. They played well. They tend to do well in October. Throw it away. Move on from it. So I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. And it is disappointing when you have so many things look similar to past years that plague you. So many things in that game that you can point to and say, that is no different than it was under David Beatty. That is no different than it was under Les Miles. And that is unfortunate. I would like to add real quick, if mm-hmm. I may, Derek, and this is something you and I were discussing off the air. It is also no different than the first year of 
Mark Mangini. Yes. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that was in 2002. I'm not going to tell you that in five years Kansas is going to be winning 11 games and ranked in the top five and going to the Orange Bowl or, like I said earlier, whatever the bowls are called at that point. But they lost to uh, what was a 500 Iowa State team. They went to Ames that year, lost to Iowa State, who was a 500 team that year. They lost to them 45-3. to The only wins for KU in Mark Mangino's first year were Southwest Missouri State, who I can't even find a record on them because they don't keep records for the 2002 season from (laughs) an FCS. And that was back when FCS was called 1AA. So it was their 1AA opponent, and their other win was a 10-point victory against Tulsa. That Tulsa team went 1-11 that year. Aside from that, it was not only a bunch of losses, it was a bunch of blowout losses. That was... They lost to K-State 64 to nothing, and I'd like to give a shout-out to Scott Chasen, who you can hear on our uh, pregame show every Saturday. Chasen pointed out on Twitter during the Iowa State game, he was wondering aloud, is 28 to nothing the worst quarter that KU had ever had in their history? And actually, no. That year, K-State was ahead of KU 30 to nothing at the end of the first quarter. And again, the theme here at least as I see it, is we're not going to blame you if you just roll your eyes and and say there's no reason to be optimistic. I'm fine with that because of how much we've had to suffer through. But I I wanted to throw out that there is some evidence that you can go from not only having a bad season, but a bad season in which you get torched most of your games to actually making progress. And I'm interested to hear, we're going to talk to John Kirby later, I'm interested to hear what he thinks... You know, we talk about are we trying to maintain a level head? Is Lance Leipold going yeah. to be the type to maintain a level head through all of this? Or is he just going to throw it away and, and say, this is worse than I thought when I took the job? It, I, I think he seems like the type of guy that would. And it's important to point out his first year at Buffalo, they were sitting on two and four. They just lost by almost 40 points to Central Michigan. And then the next week, they won. They beat Ohio, a team coached by Frank Solich, who I know we both think very highly of with Ohio. So he's been through this before. And here's the deal. I think I'm kind of splitting this up into two things. I still am in the camp, and I will be. Whatever happens the rest of the season, that I trust Lance Leipold to figure this out long term. But if we're referring to this season, and if we're going to sit here and and try to break down these games on the show and talk about this specific season... I'm kind of at a point now where I'm going to wait to reserve judgment for what happens over these next few weeks. And if it still doesn't look right after Texas Tech, then listen, I know, like I said, a lot of fans are tired of the long process thing and, you know, having to wait on everything. And while I'd argue that Leipold shouldn't be penalized for, you know, he shouldn't be penalized for David Beatty's mistakes. He shouldn't be penalized for Les Miles' mistakes because if he was undergoing all these issues right now and that past stuff hadn't happened then we wouldn't even be having this conversation. So I'm going to do that. But if the tech game isn't any better, I say this with all due respect, but we've got to give the people what they want on this show. People don't tune into this show specifically because, you know, it's, oh, we're going to talk KU football day. It's coming up on basketball season. Yeah. And so, like I said, I will still be all in on the Lance Leipold experience down the road. But in the short term, For this season, if KU, and I'm not saying they got to beat Texas Tech, if KU can't even be competitive with Texas Tech, then what are we doing here? And I want to, and I I agree with you wholly. And and 
you're hearing from two from two guys who really truly want to talk KU football, and we're one of the few. But I, I we both love college football. I have great memories of KU football. One of my earliest memories is 1995, sitting at my grandmother's house on Christmas Day, watching KU blast UCLA in the Aloha Bowl. I think it was 51 to 30 to assure them of a top 10 season. They finished ninth in the country that year. That was kind of my earliest memories of KU football. I remember the lean years, too. And then I remember how great the Mark Mangino, even even prior to the 07 season, when you know KU went to an Orange Bowl, you know going to consistently becoming bowl eligible and going to bowl games. And Derek, I know you, you know you became a KU fan when you when you became a student here, but you also love college football and your love of KU is is clear. So you're hearing from two guys who, you know, we love KU basketball too. Don't get me wrong, but we're not sitting here wanting this. We want to still be talking about KU football. You know, I would love a situation in which in four years or in three years, we're sitting here on a Monday and we're going, hey, uh, tomorrow night's Tuesday. It's Champions Classic Day. uh, But this past Saturday, KU just won their eighth game of the year and they're ranked 20th in the country. Like, I want to deal with that. Uh, But I agree. I mean, if... I don't know how much more right, you know, for this season. It, yeah. It's tough to keep doing this when you get closer, and and this is the the dilemma that a lot of fans have, and you hear it all the time. Wait till basketball season, and it is kind of a slap in the face to football, and it stinks. But again, like if if this is the alternative, losing by fifty every week, you know, if you're going to be competitive, it's a, it's another conversation. And long term, it's there, but in the short term, can't keep doing this when KU basketball season is here. And what is there interesting to talk about when this is going on? That's kind no. of, that's the other thing. Yeah. It's like, are we going to break down the 1KU touchdown for three hours? No, we're not. All right, so we're going to take a timeout. We're going to reset here on the other side. Uh, the Chiefs were victorious in football. Their defense, also not very good, but put up 42 points, and that'll get it done against the Eagles. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk with Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. David Lesky of Inside the Crown joins us in about 15 minutes. Right now, with Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Chiefs victorious yesterday, 42-30. to Doesn't really quell any of the defensive uh, thoughts for this team. The defense still looked bad, and that's not an Eagles team that is known for their offense. Um they really struggled offensively against the Cowboys on, on Monday Night Football who aren't thought of as having a great defense. So the fact that you basically, I mean, in that first half, whatever the Eagles wanted to do, uh, they did. And it continued on a little in the second half. They were a little better in the second half. But overall, it's just still not there. And I'm interested to see what happens. Where I didn't really notice Willie Gay out there. I'm not sure if he just didn't play or um, if he just played a limited Snaps. I'm interested to see what he does as he gets more in, in the defense. I don't know. We still didn't see much of Juan Thornhill until late in the game. I, I guess there's a few ways you can improve it that way, but Andy Reid said today, like I'm expecting once our defensive line is back, and I think basically referring to Frank Clark there who was out again, uh, maybe we'll get more from the defensive line. I don't think that's been proven to be true over the last couple of years, except for the postseason run in 2019. That has not proven to be true. So, I don't really know where you go from here if you're the Chiefs' defense. Obviously, good to get a win, get back on the winning ways, but now you're going up against the Bills this next week. 
An offense that, I mean, ever since the first week against the Steelers has been putting up mid-30s, 40 points a game. How do you stop that? And that's kind of the question the Chiefs are having with every offense. I, It's tough for me to think that this team can go to a Super Bowl playing this bad of defense because from what we've seen so far, this is even worse than the 2018 version. Yeah, I, I was actually pretty shocked to see, and this may go back to as we do our picks later in the week, to what does Vegas know that we don't. I was shocked to see that. I was actually Maybe not shocked. I was very surprised to see the Chiefs were a favorite against the Buffalo Bills. Um, and, and I think I could be wrong here. Uh, again, I don't know what the over-under is. That's one thing I didn't see. I just saw the line. But, I, you know, could this turn into that Monday night football game against the Rams? <laughs> I think Josh Allen, I actually think, I mean, they're coming off. Uh, they they did what they were supposed to do against a terrible Texans team. They won 40 to nothing. But, that's one of those things is against it, you know, in a game like that, what would the Chiefs would have, would have done? They probably, you know, the, they played a team that's only slightly better than the Texans. And they allowed 30 points. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think the Bills overall are the definitively better team. I think the Chiefs uh, probably can still win, but I think it's shown, and, and I'm done with Frank Clark. I mean, I think it's been shown it's hard to say this because he really, through that playoff run, had a lot to say about the Chiefs winning their first Super Bowl in 50 years. But just it, so you you have to take that in consideration. But you, I don't know. That's they gave up so much and and gotten so little in return. Um, and if it's because you know he's had his stomach ailment, I I don't wish ill on the guy. I hope he stays healthy. But just when we're on the topic of football and talking on the field stuff, he hasn't shown anything, and I don't see. I don't know. I, I can't. I can't sit here and tell you that I see anything that's going to alleviate that once he's back. You know, I, Dana, Mike Dana, got a couple sacks. Yeah, he was he was the best defensive lineman. And the question is, does that mean that the with you know if if they decide Chris Jones can't be an outside guy with Mike Dana's success, does that mean they can move Chris Jones back to the inside? Maybe I don't know, but I also know that the broader problem to me remains that they've overspent for Hitchens. They overspent for Frank Clark. They drafted highly Juan Thornhill. He can't find the field. And Willie Gay, don't know if it's a scheme fit, if it's uh, he can't learn the defense, or if it's just because he's injured. But I'm just, I continue to see a disconnect between the talent that Brett Veach brings in and the way Steve Spagnolo uses this talent. Now, if he's if his defense is overly complicated, then they either need to get him to lessen it or they need to find guys who can who can handle it. But to me the bigger story is still the disconnect between Brett Veach and Steve Spagnolo or the seeming disconnect. Well, and, and the problem there is that you have like veterans of this defense on different levels of the defense, and they just look so disorganized and even know where they're going. That should be one. That should have been the first four games of Steve Spagnuolo's first year, uh, not his third. Yeah, there there makes there's zero sense why it would occur, and you have so many players who are back at, at each level of the defense. You know, you're not just talking about. So the fact that you have guys just running wide open, the fact that you have guys in the wrong spots before the play, after the play, during the play. That is something that should be, I would think, fixable, correctable, um, above some of the other things. Like, you know, all of a sudden you can't just turn 
Anthony Hitchens into Mike Singletary. Like, that's not going to happen. But maybe you can fix some of those. Maybe that's moving the margins. I kind of look at the Chris Jones experiment as a defensive end, and it was nice the first game. He got two sacks. I, I think you probably got to move him back. I I mean... He's more valuable. It yeah. seems like he's more valuable there. Well, think about this, too. Uh, you, uh, part of the reason you moved him out was you signed Jaron Reed, who was, I don't know, maybe your biggest offseason splash. There, there wasn't a ton or anything. Um, and you signed him from the Seahawks. He was supposed to be a defensive tackle who came in from Seattle who was going to provide pass rush from the interior. And so you basically said, okay, well, now that we have him, that allows us to move Chris Jones to the outside and help with a position that we don't have as much on the edges and Jaron Reed has been non-existent so far for the Chiefs defense, which to me means, okay, let's move Chris Jones back to the interior. You mentioned how well Mike Dana played. You put him on the outside. Just try something, something different. Maybe Willie Gay coming back as well. That can change things for this team. But as far as how you improve, it has to be all that internal stuff because the way I view it, first of all, the, the NFL trade deadline is never – it's never anything close to what like the MLB or NBA trade deadline is, where you're actually going to add pieces that are going to help you win a title. Uh, not that it doesn't happen. It's just how many trades do we see at the NFL trade deadline? Like five? Yeah, there's no minor league. It's not like a situation. No. The collateral in the NFL draft picks. Right. And it's not minor league prospects. Yeah, and so typically if a team does make a trade at the trade deadline, it's like we got one guy. That's it. And sometimes, again, like it's, it's none. That's most often. I mean... Uh, Last year, Chiefs, what, they didn't add anybody except for Le'Veon Bell, who was a free agent at the deadline. You know, you, you can't expect that to happen. And even if it did, I don't think you want to go down that road. Like, if it was presented to you today, I'm trying to think who a, a, a good defensive player on a bad team is. I know, for instance, like Chandler Jones was requesting a trade in the offseason. That ain't happening now because the Cardinals are 4-0 and they're going to say, you know what, even if you walk at the end of the year, we don't care because we want we want to win this year. But you take a, a good defensive player off a bad team, um, let's just say like the Houston Texans, and you find some defensive player on the Houston Texans, and they say, you know what, sure, we'll trade him to you because we're not doing anything this year. We'll get draft picks. Maybe it makes the defense an iota better, but with as bad as the defense is, even if it makes you even a little better, it's still a bad defense. And at that point, you would just be hurting yourself in the future for no apparent reason. How about... I would almost argue you go the opposite. I would almost argue they should just say, you know what, if we're going to be terrible, why don't we just stack up on picks? Let's trade away all these players. It can't get worse than it is now. We'll play young guys. We'll see. give some guys some tryouts. Again, it can't get worse than it is now. And then uh, you get a bunch of draft picks next year. I wasn't going to that level, but that's actually an interesting point. I, I kind of smiled when he started bringing up that point because I thought the direction you were going was exactly what I was about to say, which is, Okay, we can't solve the defense, so let me ask you this, Derek. Let's say there is a scenario where there is a player. Let's say one guy is a pass rusher and one guy is a wide receiver or a running back, and they each play, like let's say their Madding rating, Madden rating would be about a 70, and you can get each guy for the same price. Okay, would you rather get a pretty decent player to plug into this defense that is – terrible and probably will remain terrible even if you add a decent pass rusher or would you rather add another weapon for Patrick Mahomes and just and just resign yourself <laughs> to the fact that we're going to have to win 45 to 35 I think I would go with the offense and 
It's funny. I remember actually like having conversations on this very show in 2018. I feel like we're just reliving 2018 right now. Um, yes, I, I, I would go for the offense because at this point, yeah, that is your best case. And it's not a situation where the offense is like, okay, the offense is perfect as is, right? So there's nothing we could add. Why not add to the defense? That's not the case. Even as good as the Chiefs' offense is. I'd take another running back. They could, Yeah, they could use another running back. They could use another receiver. Heck, they could probably use another two receivers. Yeah, You could use, a, I don't know, Jody Fortson's playing well and uh, how much value is there in a second tight end, I don't know. But hypothetically, if you got the option of getting a good second tight end like the Eagles have with Ertz and Goddard, yeah, you'd take that all day, right? Like if the Eagles, because I think Zach Ertz is a free agent at the end of the year, if the Eagles, who are out of it in a couple weeks, say, hey, give us a sixth-round pick for Zach Ertz. Yeah, if you could build your offense to a point where, you know, you can consistently win. You know, the this was what I I can't remember the exact number. Some ridiculously small number of NFL games in the history of the National Football League have ended with no punts, and the Chiefs have been involved with two of them. <laughs> One was in the playoffs, and so I mean that's just a legitimate question. Do you just want to build at least for this season? Do you want to set yourself up in such a way that you're just saying okay? Yeah, we're just going to have to win the no punt games. We're going to have to, okay, you know, we're going to have to have an offense that has yeah. nine well, drives and scores. You know what on the eight flip of- side to that 2003 game is? The Colts are sitting there going, man, we didn't force any punts and exactly. we won the game. We, yeah, yeah. So be that team. Exactly. Be the Colts. And so, I, you know, that's, look, if you get to the finish line, you get to the finish line. Now, look, that that NFC or the, the AFC championship game, that 2018 team, they're an offsides away from going to the Super Bowl. Uh, I think there is something to be said about their offense has been somewhat figured out. Now, I think Andy Reid is arguably the best offensive coach in the history of the NFL. So I think any adjustments the defenses make to their offense, he's going to be able to reshuffle and readjust. So I'm yeah. not worried about that. But, you know, you could ask yourself. Now, the, the other thing is I don't know if this team can get a bye. Um, but if look if they build themselves up to, I, I'd take a Super Bowl even if it means you know if you win if, if you wind up having the worst defense in the history of Super Bowl champions you're still a Super Bowl champion right, right. I would take that you know so the question that you know if we if we're trying to get in the mind of Andy Reid and Brett Veach you know how do we want to to try to accomplish that do we want to to try to chisel away and see what this defense can become. Or do we just want to say, no, we're going to have to do it, you know, via offense. We're going to have yeah. to just double up the greatest show on turf. Well, I think the best thing this defense could do, because of everything we're talking about, that you know, maybe there can be minor improvements for a few things, but overall, it's never going to become a good defense this year. I think the biggest positive, at least from the game, was you finally made some stops in the red zone. And part of it does get attributed to Philadelphia for not being aggressive and going for it on some fourth downs in the red zone like we've seen other teams do, notably the Cleveland Browns in week one. So that helped you. But instead of being a team who every time until I think the penultimate Chargers drive in the red zone turned into a touchdown, you actually held them to a couple field goals. And that might be all you need. So we saw that from the Chiefs defense in... Was it 2016 or 2017, the year that you lost to the Steelers in the playoffs, giving up whatever, five, six field goals? Okay, so 2016, that was not like a great defense 
yards wise and like some of the metrics, but if you looked at points allowed per game, they were pretty good been because they were bend don't break. Yes, and, and yes, they were low possession. So well from turnovers. Yes, too. and turnovers. But if that's what you are with this team, that's all you need. Yeah. The issue is, you know what forces turnovers? Pass rush, yeah. tight coverage, now, and if, what's not happening right now. But if yeah, if if you're if you're in a situation where, you know, just to use, you know, equal numbers, let's say there's no situation in which somebody just takes a knee at the end of either half. So let's say each team has eight possessions. If you can score seven touchdowns, you've got forty nine points. And if the other team you know, let's back it up. Let's say you go six touchdowns, a punt, and a field goal. That's mm-hmm. forty five points. Well, I think I think the Chiefs scored forty two yesterday. So that's forty five points. If with the other team's eight possessions, you can keep them from doing less than that, then that's all, you know, it's not too much, I don't think, to ask of this defense to keep them from scoring <laughs> 45 points. No, that should be the story of this Chiefs defense. Is it too much to ask, really? Yeah. That's the question mark. All right, David Lesky, Inside the Crown, is going to talk Royals with us. The season's over for the Royals as we head to the MLB playoffs. That on the other side with Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson on RCST. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLW. I'm Derek Johnson. Along with me is Adam Dravetta. David Lusky of Inside the Crown joins us now on RCST. It's 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 kind of a bittersweet day because I always enjoy talking with David, but the season's now over, and I'm sure we'll have David on over the course of different points throughout the offseason and, you know, when the Royals make a big move or what. I don't know, an intermediate move, I guess, is the more realistic way of looking at things. Um, so kind of sad there, but uh, David, from the beginning of the season to now, overall thoughts from what you were expecting before the year to what ended up happening this season. What would you get right? What would you get wrong? Well, so I thought they were going to go 76 and 86, and they went 74 and 88, which mm. in general – means that I failed miserably. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, I, was, I was pretty close. But the, the reality is I did not get it right about how they would get there. <laughs> because this team, they just they took a, took a really circuitous route to get there. <laughs> and um, it's not the worst thing in the world because, you know, you'd, you'd much rather they, – they started strong and ended – Fine. Fine's not even enough. They they were thirty eight and thirty five in the second half. So that's that's pretty good. Um, that's like what an eighty five win pace, something like that. So uh, I I think that you would you'd rather have a team start start and end well than play really well in the middle and start and end terribly to get to seventy four and eighty eight. I guess. Um, but yeah, I was I was pretty close on that. Um, you may have remembered that I was. I, I thought Hunter Dozier would have a terrible season, and I and I was dead. Now I said he was going to break out. <laughs> I was. He had a he had a good second half too, though. Um, Just really push it off the next year. Yeah. No. I mean, see, it's, it's not my fault because of nine different reasons. I'm going to list them out for you <laughs> it, it, alphabetically. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I got that wrong. Um, I did get right. I thought Ben Intendi would start slow and then pick it up. I was dead on on that, so I feel good about that. Um, I thought the young pitching would be better than it was, so I was wrong there. But, um, you know, all in all, they, they kind of ended up, like I said, about where most of us expected. I don't, I don't think there were a lot of people um, outside of maybe the front office and the, 
and the staff that thought more than a mid seventies win team. I mean, you might you might have seen the occasional like eighty one and eighty one, eighty two and eighty prediction, but they kind of ended up where we all expected them to, which. I mean, yeah, you'd like to see team overachieve, but getting to the expectation is much better than underachieving. So, um, you know, a lot of reason for optimism, a lot of reason that it may not work out, I think. But at, this, at the end, uh, like I said, the good second half with all the young pitching, I mean, I wrote today, 11 of the final 73 games were started by guys older than 26 years old. <laughs> That's 62 out of 73 games of pitchers 26 or younger. And and one of those eleven was Yoel Piams, who was starting a, a bullpen game. So does that really count? I don't know. Like technically, yes. But um, when you've got that kind of young pitching, it is always easy to be optimistic because it's so easy to think about a twenty-three-year-old getting better as a twenty-four-year-old and, and and all that. So you know, all in all, I I'm not unhappy with the season. It was it was a slog at times, but I think it I think it went pretty well for, considering what we all expected. I'm I'm gonna use that by the way that that uh, mantra next time like I don't know I'm supposed to do a chore or something at, at my ha- home and uh, my wife comes home and she's like why didn't you do this and I'm like well I did this other thing I I didn't exceed your expectations but I didn't fail them either um, exactly <laughs> so uh, based on what happened though in the second half with how well they played and you mentioned Hunter Dozier how strong of a second half he had uh, Andrew Benintendi finishing the season hot how, how much of what happened in that second half do you think is translatable to next season? Well, you know, uh, the, the good thing about the second half, at least the start of it, the first half of the second half, I guess, was mostly played against good teams. Uh, they they had stretches. I mean, they, they started off against the Orioles, and then it was like Blue Jays, White Sox, Cardinals, Astros, Mariners. I mean, all these teams that either made the playoffs or were right in the hunt until the very last day. Um, and they played pretty well. I mean, they yeah, they cleaned up a little bit against, um, you know, they swept the Cubs, and, and they played well against the Tigers, who were a much better team after the first, like, month of the season. They started off 9-24 and 24 and finished, what, 77-85? So, I mean, they were over 500 from that point on, which is a long time. Um, but so they, they, they cleaned up against they needed to clean up against, for the most part. Um, they beat some good teams. So I think some of that is is sustainable. Ultimately, the problem with the Royals lineup is that they don't have, outside of Salvador Perez, um, and maybe the way Nicky Lopez played in the second half, they don't really have anybody who you think, oh, I can count on that guy. No, they've got a bunch of guys who you'd love to have hitting after the guys you can count on. <laughs> but but do you really want Andrew Benintendi as your cleanup hitter? Um, guy, you love to have him in the lineup. You just wish he was hitting six instead of four. Um, and, and, and I think that... That that's uh that's an off season goal for them, and it might it might be another year before we see that because I think what you're looking at is probably the young guys to come up and hopefully fill that role, which is inherently risky. I mean, we we saw them we saw them try to do that in 2012, and with, with Hosmer and Mustakis and and Salvi, and um, it didn't work out, and then it, it took a little while. So it's possible that we see another year of offense like that, but. When you've got that young pitching, if you can get these bats like the Dozers and the Benintendi to not have to be the guys you count on in the middle, well, and all of a sudden you start to look at a pretty good lineup. So, yeah, if they can get some help, I think so. I think at least a good chunk of it is sustainable. Michael A. Taylor, since the last time you were on, signed a two-year, nine million dollar extension. Uh, what do you think that means for the Royals' outfield situation? And do you think that means 
you pencil him in to be the starting center fielder and that they're not going to address that maybe outfield as, as much as you might have thought coming into the uh, offseason. Has that really been since we last talked? It feels like it was three weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess I guess it is. Um, yeah, I mean, I think look, if you look at the starting center field market out there, um, the best free agent is Darling Marte, who is going to be 33, I think. I, don't, I think he's 32. He will be 33. He's going to get three or four years, 60 to 70 million. I don't know that that's a smart sign. Um, I know that it would be good for 2022, but I'm not sure how good that will look in 2023, 24, and all of a sudden he's the guy everybody hates. <laughs> you look at the trade market, Ketel Marte. Um, uh, I'm trying to think who else was Are out Are there, there any other Martes uh, available? Bri- <laughs> There's a couple. Um, Brian Reynolds, um, Cedric Mullen. You know, all the reports are that the, the cost for those guys to acquire them is just astronomical. And so then you turn back to Michael A. Taylor, who was the best defensive center fielder in baseball this year by just about every metric. Um, he wasn't good offensively. He wasn't a zero offensively. He's probably about 25% below league average, which is a lot. I'm not, I'm not saying that he, oh, go out there and, and run with that. But it, he's another guy who, like I wrote, if he's your eighth or ninth best hitter, your offense, you're fine because he goes to get it in center field as well as anybody. If he's your fifth or sixth place hitter, you're in really big trouble. <laughs> and and he, he hit fifth or sixth, I think, like 41 times this year or something like that, which is just it's too much because he's not good enough for that. And so, uh, yeah, I think he's a starting center fielder. Um, I don't – well, you know, barring, barring a trade of Benintendi, which I don't think is impossible. Um, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't exactly put – put money on it, but I think it's certainly possible that they will move him. I, I think the starting outfield is fairly well set with Benintendi and left Taylor and center. And then some combination of Hunter Dozier, Kyle Isbell and Adalberto Mondesi in right field. I, I think that he's going to pick up an outfield glove this winter and come to camp playing a lot of positions. So I, I, I think that that's what your outfield is going to look like. I, I, is it good enough? I don't know. Um, I mean, it kind of depends. What Benintendi do you get? Do you get April and August Benintendi or April and July Benintendi, or do you get May and September Benintendi? <laughs> if you get if you get the latter, yeah, you're fine. If you get the former, no. If you get first half Dozier, second half Dozier. I, I don't know. Do you get the first 10 games Mondesi or the last 25 games Mondesi? I, it depends. So I mean, there are some issues there, but I, I think what the Royals have done is they've kind of solidified their position player group with that signing of Taylor because you've got those guys in the outfield, then you've got Bobby Witt, uh, Nicky Lopez, Whit Merrifield, Nick Prado, Carlos Santana, MJ Melendez, Salvi, you know, catcher and infield covered. It's kind of hard to see them making a move there because just, there's just not room for it, again, unless there's a trade, which is certainly possible. So that, that's what makes this offseason so interesting is there's this glut of players and it's, we just don't know how it's going to shake out and, and how, how they're going to fix that or if, they, if they're going to fix it. They're going to say, look, we want, we're happy to have this depth. Every year we talk about, oh, they didn't have enough depth. They, had to go, they ended up having, having to hit Michael A. Taylor fifth, like we're talking about. Well, if they don't trade anybody, they don't have to hit Taylor fifth probably because they can just move on to the next guy. It's risky, obviously, but uh, that, that's the way they can go too. So there's, there's a lot of balls in the air this offseason. 
Okay, let's say you have just been fired. Sorry about that, but now you're rehired. Congratulations. In Vegas, you are now working for, I don't know, somebody who sets the lines on the over-under win totals. Um, what would you set the Royals at? Early expectations for the 2022 season. Uh, given the, the, the current roster, I would probably put it at 77 and a half. Um, I answered that quickly because I'd actually thought about this question before. You, I didn't even know you were going to ask this. I swear, <laughs> but a very precise I, I, number. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I really, I was because literally earlier today, I'm going. Oh, this team, I could see 77, 78 wins next season. And I go, oh, that's a perfect over under seventy seven and a half. And then you asked me that, and I was ready. But if if they make some good moves, and I think if they can get a guy who you can slot at the top of their rotation, doesn't have to be a true number one, just somebody who's their number one. And you maybe get a guy for the bullpen. Maybe it's a Daniel Hudson. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe they go big and go Rachel Iglesias, and then they really solidify the back of that bullpen. I think you can up that. I think you start looking at 82, 83, somewhere in there. Um, but I think right now with the current roster, you know, hoping for improvements from the young pitchers, all that, 77 and a half around there, is, is a, I think that's a really good number. Would you take the over? You know, I probably would. Hmm. Um I don't know. And maybe it's just like, hey, 38 and 35 second half optimism. Maybe it's that I, I really believe in a lot of these young pitchers. And I think what they've done is they've thrown so many numbers at it that even if Coar doesn't ever figure it out, all right, move on to the next guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's another guy ready to go just constantly with this organization right now. They've done such a good job with that. And I really believe in their offensive development to be able to, to churn out some big league hitters. So, well, look, we haven't seen it in action yet, so I, I may be way off here, but I, I feel like I feel like the 2022 Royals are a really strong recipe for overperformance, which is a good thing. And I, so, yeah, I'd take the over on that. Talking with David Lesky inside the crown here. Um, the playoffs, not partaking are the Royals, but uh, still on the forefront. Hey, they played October baseball. Baseball, that's true. Good job. Yeah, they did do that. Um, it's always October. <laughs> as you look around the MLB for this playoffs, do you have any predictions for uh, a World Series pick maybe this year? Yeah, I, you know, I just put that together um, for tomorrow's newsletter. And uh, my, I think I have raised over Brewers. And my reasoning is pretty simple. You can go to the wild card games and the Dodgers and the, the Yankees are going to win. And then I think it kind of goes a little chalky. I think you get the, uh, I think it's not completely. I think the Dodgers beat the Giants. Uh, I think the, the Brewers beat the Braves. And then the Dodgers get tired. <laughs> they had to bust it just to get to the, you know, to, to try to win the division. And then a wild card game. And I think the Brewers pitching just takes them down and gets to the World Series. And over in the American League, I think the, the Rays and Astros and the ALCS, and then the Rays beat them because they're better. <laughs> they beat the Brewers because they're simply better. Um, which is a terrible way to predict the playoffs because it never shakes out the way you expect it to. So I'm going to be way off, but that's, that's what I'm going with. So when the Royals won the World Series, and this happens with whoever wins in, in their given sport, it creates the topic around the league of like, well, this is what you got to do to win the title. Clearly right. the team just did it. So when the Royals won, it was, hey, you got to build a bullpen if you want to win the title, which I always find silly because it's just like, no, you just uh, however you can find to be the best team, do that. Whatever is is the market inefficiency exactly. kind of. Anyway, uh, so based on if one of those teams that you have in the World Series wins it all, the Brewers or the Rays, what is the industry going to be saying about this is how you have to win a title? 
Well, if it's the Brewers, it's it's developing starting pitching because the the reason that I think they're going to go as far as they are is because of Brandon Woodruff, Corbin Burns, and Freddie Peralta, and and the other two starters. I mean, they're, they're both good too. So it's not like I think their worst starter ERA is like three point two four this year. Mm. Um, so, so that and and Josh Hader, the back of the bullpen. Now losing Devin Williams, it's a pretty big loss, but I still think they're good enough to, to overcome that and not not worry too much about it. Um, and if the Rays. When it, it honestly, I think it's all about versatility—not just positional, but you know, pitchers throwing when they need to be th- when when they when they're needed. A starter saying, "I don't care that I come after four innings because it's best for the team." Uh, platoons and and pinch hitting and all that, and it's just really about bu- building a a really flexible roster, which the Royals kind of have. So if, if you're looking at trying to to mimic the Rays, they're not there. Um, what they're actually kind of trying to build is similar to the combination of both with all the young starting pitching and the flexibility on the field. And the Royals are kind of trying to become, we'll call them the Brayers, I guess, because it's, it's the two of them combined. And so uh, they're, they're on their way if that's the case. But I think that's the blueprint that people will want to follow. All right. We're talking with David Lusky inside the crown. David, before we let you go, one last thing with Adam. David, one last thing. If I could give you a superpower of either tele, uh, telepathy or telekinesis, but you have a sworn nemesis who has that exact same superpower, which do you pick? Wait, okay, wait. So telepathy is you can, can read, read somebody's mind, minds. Yeah. What is telekinesis? You telekinesis, can move stuff you with your mind? Stuff, okay. Yeah. Like the Travolta movie. <laughs> okay. I, I would rather, I think telepathy because, oh, now I'm kind of doubting myself. No, I think telepathy because, I would be terrified to have things just moving by my nemesis. Yeah. And I, and I mm-hmm. think that I would like to at least be able to know what, what they are thinking. <laughs> and, just think and every press conference uh, for the Royals, you would be able to, like, if you asked them a question, you could ask Dayton Moore anything directly you wanted, and he yes. would give you the PR answer, but you would know the real answer. Are you saying that Dayton Moore is my nemesis? Because I don't think you're wrong. I just, <laughs> I just need to know the answer <laughs> So um, I, I think telepathy for sure. Okay. All right. Excellent. Good answer. All right. That is David Lusky inside the crown. David, thank you so much for the time as always. And uh, yeah, we'll have to catch up over the course of this off season based on uh, what happens. We'll find some time. There we go. That's David Lusky. Check out all his work, including those playoff predictions at inside the crown. This is rock chalk sports talk. One hour down two to go on FM 1017 at 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. <laughs> Tough getting out of bed this morning after your weekend-long bender? Uh Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Instead of focusing on Monday, it's time to rehash the glory days of the weekend that was, right now, on Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. All right, welcome in. Another Monday, another chance for Case of the Mondays. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. MLB regular season came to a close over the weekend. We just talked to David about his postseason prediction. Unfortunately, it wasn't as chaotic as one might have thought. I was hoping that we were going to get a bunch of Game 163s today. 
we had going into Sunday, the Yankees and Red Sox were both tied for, I guess, the first and second wild card at that point. And the Toronto Blue Jays, Seattle Mariners were only game behind the Mariners. Went on a hot streak at the end of the year just to get there. I think they had won like 10 of 11 or something like that just to be in that position. And then you also had in the NL West, the Giants were only a game up on the Dodgers, where if the Giants lost, Dodgers won, you would have had a game 163 for winning the NL West with the loser having the second best record in baseball and going to the wild card game. So uh, it could have been absolutely crazy. We could have had a bunch of game 163s today. If you would have had all four teams tie for the wild card, so if the Yankees and Red Sox would have lost yesterday and the Mariners would have won, Blue Jays did win, then what you would have had is you would have had basically a wild card semifinal. You would have had, I, I, I don't remember who had the tiebreaker, but based on like head to head, interdivisional records, all this stuff, they basically would have gotten to draft, do you want position A, position B, position C, position D? And like position A would have hosted position D, position B would have hosted position C, and then the winners play in the wild card. That would have been perfect. I wish that would have happened. Yeah, I uh, I texted you last night, Derek, after the Red Sox took the lead because it was pretty clear from the out from the get-go that the Mariners weren't going to take care of business. They got down big early. I think it was 7-3 to three was their final. But in the ninth inning, when the Red Sox uh, took the lead against the Washington Nationals, which is still so weird to me to see an American League playing a National League team at the end of the season. But, but that's besides the point. Um, I sent you a text, Derek, that I cannot reread on air, but it basically expressed our mutual disappointment that we're not going to get. Because we talked about this. I can't remember if it's off air, but I think it was on air. We talked on Friday about how much fun that last game of the year or that last day of the year was in 2011. That was so much fun. And that that amazing end to 2011 is actually why they started the one-game wild card, which started up in 2012. You know, and, and if, you know, it, the one-game wild card I'm a big fan of, but if you, can, if you can organically build it just because of how the team finished the season, to me, that's even better. Yeah, and we didn't get the 2011 season, but oh well. I mean, there was a second there, though, yesterday where we almost did get chaos. Um, the Just in the AL, the, the NL West, Giants blew out uh, the Padres, the Dodgers blew out the Brewers. But the Blue Jays basically had it in the bag against the Orioles. They got up big. I think George Springer hit a grand slam to make it 9-1. So you knew they were going to win that game. And then everything else was in question. I think it was 4-2. to two. In the Angels-Mariners game, it was 0-0 in the Rays-Yankees game till they walked it off in the ninth or 10th inning. The Red Sox were down 5-2 to two to the Nationals in the 6th or 7th. Were they down? Yeah, they were down. I, I didn't catch up till, till it was already 5-5. Five, five. Yeah, so they ended up coming back. Rafael Devers hits the home run in extra innings. What could have been? As far as now, though, with the postseason set, you have the AL wildcard taking place tomorrow, which... As much as I wanted the chaos, there is a part of me that says, well, honestly, this is going to be really cool. We get an AL wild card between the Yankees and the Red Sox. Like, how cool is that? A Fenway Park. And then the winner of that will play the Tampa Bay Rays, so it'll stay divisional there. You'll also have on the other side of things, the White Sox and the Astros and the NL. Dodgers end up with the second-best record in baseball. They're hosting the wild card against the Hot Cardinals right now. And then the winner of that will play the Giants, and you'll have the Brewers taking on the Braves on the NL side. Is there any team that you look at that you like that maybe to make a run? I mean, 
because of my fandom for the Kansas City Royals, I'm going to take some partiality with the Brewers because they're a smaller market. Um, I don't think they've ever won. I think they're one of the teams that have never won. I think they've only been to the World Series once. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was the early, it was like 82, I think, when that happened. Um, so I, I guess I'll lean them, although they their market just had a world championship this year, this summer, with the Bucks. Um so I, I'm not quite sure. I, I you know, if, if not Milwaukee, then the Rays. You know, the Rays have gotten close in 08. They made it to the to uh, the World Series. You know, I, I just I like the Rays. I, I like that they have to be creative. Uh, and, and I think I will say I think teams like the Red Sox and the Yankees get a bad rap because of how much money they they have. A lot of people think their front office just sits on their fat butt and just throws money at anything, and they well we'll just get the best player. They have to be creative and smart too with those, you know, with those payrolls. Uh, but the, the Rays are just in such a unique situation. I wish they had uh, fans that showed out. Like if you could put the Oakland A's fan base into the into what the Tampa Rays do, <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. Um, but I did say, and, and you know, I, I don't want to be accused of being a fair weather fan because I'm not a fan of any of these teams. But I did mention last week, in every sport, I believe there are certain teams that when they're good, that sport is better. I think the Cardinals are one of those teams in baseball. I think the Yankees and Red Sox are both among those teams in baseball. Um, So, you know, if we're sitting there and it's, uh, you know, the Cardinals and and the Red Sox, I think, have already played twice in this century in the... uh, um, in the World Series, that wouldn't hurt my feelings. But an ideal one for me would be Rays Brewers. I know I, I was very long-winded with my answer, but I'd say Rays Brewers would be my ideal World Series. Yeah, that's what David Lesky picked. I have a friend who picked that, and he pointed out to me that would be Bucks versus the Bucks. You have Tampa Bay Buccaneers who won the Super Bowl in that market. You have the uh, Milwaukee Bucks who won the championship in that market. Determine which is the better uh, kind of middle tier, lower. I, I don't know. The Tampa Bay is not a small market. One? They did, but just, you know, I don't know, for the sake of breaking a tie, I guess. That's fair. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with, like, I have the Do- the Dodgers on a roll right now. It's just, it's inconceivable for me to... You don't know who you want, but the Dodgers who you're picking. Yeah, Dodgers who I'm picking. I just, like, you basically have Cody Bellinger as a platoon player right now. Cody Bellinger was the National League MVP two seasons ago. That's how stacked this lineup is. Trey Turner has been insane since he came over to the Dodgers. He was already an all-star, one of the best players in the game. He's added to a new level. Um, Their pitching staff is incredible. I know Kershaw got injured, and who knows what that's going to do to the pitching staff. But even without him, it's like Max Scherzer is the number one. Julio Urias is the number two. And uh, or as the number three, Walker Buehler is the number two. You could argue Scherzer and Buehler are going to both finish top three in the Cy Young voting. Urias is going to finish in the top. I don't know. We'll talk about that here in a moment. I don't know, but he's he's been fantastic. And on top of it, you have the best lineup in the major leagues. So I, I have a hard time seeing anybody beat them. If somebody does beat them, the best chance to me is the Cardinals, just because it's a one game. Anything can happen. If the Cardinals can't beat them, I don't see anybody beating them. Um, as far as the AL. I, it's okay. It's weird because if you were to tell me, like, just point out the teams you don't think can win at all, it's hard. It's easy to do in certain sports. Like the NFL, it's very easy every year to come up with a collection of maybe four or five teams in the postseason who you actually think can win it all. So, like last year, you know, the Bears made the playoffs, but you easily, like, they're not winning the Super Bowl, you know? Um, in the NBA, it's very easy to say, 
basically seeds four through eight, unless you have LeBron on your team or Kevin Durant or something, one of the best players in the world, you're not, you, you have no chance of winning the NBA Finals. You don't really get that in baseball because there is more randomness in a shorter sample size. So it's it's hard for me to say that, yeah, this team, even though they're in the playoffs, they don't have a chance because that's probably not true in the MLB. But I don't know why I just don't really view the, the Red Sox at having that. I, I don't know. But every other team, I can see that. But in the AL, I at first thought the White Sox were one of those teams because they had been struggling a bit. But they picked it up here over the last couple weeks. And the more I think about it, the White Sox, you're talking about a really good lineup. You're talking about a really good starting pitching staff uh, with guys who have some experience because they were in it last year. Dallas Keuchel has experience with Houston, although he hasn't been all too great this season. But it's the bullpen for me with the White Sox that's really interesting. Uh, they went out and traded for Craig Kimbrell. They already had maybe the best closer, one of the best closers in the game this year with Liam Hendricks. Um, you have guys like Michael Kopech and Garrett Crochet who are both young pitching prospects who are these highly regarded pitching prospects who have been pitching in the bullpen and throw 102 miles per hour and can be lights out. I love what they can do. And I think I'm leaning them. I It's just so hard to, to go back to the World Series. And even though I'm picking the Dodgers to go there, it's just because I think they're that special. I don't know if the Rays can do it. Like I said, it just takes so much. I kind of think the Yankees are going to upset the Rays. And then I could see the White Sox going to the World Series. So I'm going to go with Dodgers, White Sox, and then I'm going to go with the Dodgers. How much, all. how much do you think, percentage-wise, give or take, how much do you think a manager matters in baseball? Because if it's a decent percent, I think the White Sox have the managerial advantage. Or the White Sox. I don't know if I just said the Red Sox. I meant the White Sox. See, I think the managerial advantage, it's funny because a lot AM. of people would tell you, no, I think they have a disadvantage. It just depends because I think a lot of people don't like Tony Larusa. I think he's, I think he's kind of, you know, he's, but he has the pedigree in the playoffs, so right? Yeah, he's and he's won, you know, he's already won a World Series with two different teams. You know, he was. I, I still fervently disagree with all his takes about, uh, you know, hitting for hitting for a home run when you're right. Up big and Not that was the kids play and stuff. Yeah, but. But we need you to separate those out, right? His, yeah. You know, even if you think he's curmudgeoning with with some of those takes, you can't deny how good he is. No. And, and again, if, if the manager doesn't mean much, or if, if whatever the manager means, that advantage can't overtake how good another team is with their players, then it's, it's not going to matter. I think they matter a lot more in the postseason, though, right? Because I, the yeah. margins are smaller. It's a smaller sample size. So, and and because it's a shorter sample size, you're going to be Every decision matters. Every decision matters, and every decision is... Like, there are more decisions. In, in the regular season, if your starting pitcher is giving up three runs through five innings, okay, just roll them out there again. We need the innings. In the, in the postseason, it's like, oh, you're about to give up your third run in the fourth inning? Sorry, see ya. There's just more decisions to be had. So I think it does matter. And it's interesting because he's going up against Dusty Baker, who's the Astros manager who's had so much success, but has but had very little postseason as success. somebody who struggled in the postseason. Mm-hmm. So I, that's, a, that's a very interesting point that I hadn't really considered, but I guess it makes me feel even better about the White Sox. I mentioned with Julio Urias, and this happened over the weekend too. Julio Urias, the Dodgers starter, won his 20th game of the season. He is the first National League pitcher to win 20 games in five seasons. It's funny because win-loss record, and mainly wins, used to be such a big criteria in the Cy Young discussion. And I think it was Felix Hernandez who kind of broke that 
when he won with like a 13 and 12 record. And then Jacob deGrom kind of added to that a couple years ago when he had like a losing record, but he had like a two ERA. So they gave it to him. It's, it's funny because Julio Urias, if you think about all the great pitchers in the National League this year, Max Scherzer, Walker Buehler, just on his own team. Corbin Burns, I don't know, maybe Freddie Peralta, but um, Brandon Woodruff, those guys are all going to probably finish in front of him in the Cy Young voting. Maybe even a guy like Adam Wainwright, Kevin Gossman are going to be around there in, in the Cy Young voting. Uh, Zach Wheeler, probably going to be ahead of him. You can make an argument, Julio Urias, who led the league in wins isn't even going to finish top five and it just makes me think how much of a transformation we've come at that award because if you're talking 10 years ago he wins that award right yeah uh i think the the first one that always comes to my mind was uh zach grinke now he did go 16 and 8 i think so but i think felix hernandez was like 14 and 10 yeah he was really bad uh, well, I know he was really great, but from a win-loss standpoint... Yeah, he was the two, first one I remember. Um, and so he was even two... You know, if you want to go play win-loss, he was even two games behind... Uh, you know, he was even two games behind uh, what Zach Greinke did in 2009. Um, you know, he's got the best wins. Most wins, he's got the best win-loss percentage. Um, you know, but things are starting to matter more. I mean, you know, people really, really, ERA is mattering a lot. Whip is mattering a lot. Uh, Wheeler leads all pitchers in the NL, and maybe even all of baseball, uh, for wins above replacement. Um, you know, so I, it is interesting. I, 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 I actually had the same thought, not about pitchers, but uh, I was discussing with somebody on Friday, Nicky Lopez in, like, 1992, would be an MVP candidate for the yes. Kansas City Royals. Yes, he had no power, but he was bat. He finished batting 300 with a with a really good glove at what a lot of people view as a as a premium defensive position. Yeah, Nicky Lopez. You know, they the offensive stats have kind of uh, people started valuing those differently a little ahead of the uh, of what they do with the pitching stats. But it is just crazy how you know we view the the value. I like to think a lot about who would be a, you know, an MVP candidate or a, a Hall of Fame candidate now that maybe couldn't even get a contract in 1994. You know, whether it be a pitcher or or a batter. That's hmm. tough because everybody you think of now, like it's I mean, easier to do the other way around. Yeah, hundred hundred. Yeah, strike, like like think about all the guys. That Normally, you look at 100 strikeouts. You know they're not getting in 2000. Forget the early 90s. In 2000, you have 100 strikeouts. Probably, you know, you're not getting a big contract. That's for sure. But now you come in, I, you know, 100. Okay, strikeouts. Joey Gallo. Yeah. Joey Gallo hits 220. He gets like a 360 on base percentage. He walks a lot. He hits a lot of home runs. But he only hits like 210, 220. Strikes out 200 times a year. Who was the guy? Uh, he was more off the bench. He, he won the world title with the Phillies, but I remember him in Kansas City. Um, Matt Stairs. Oh, yeah. Matt Stairs was built. Great pinch hitter. He was, yeah. yeah, he was built like somebody who should have been hauling beer during during the <laughs> Royals and, and Phillies game. But he's another example of, of you know, and, and he was always weird because he was a pinch hitter. If you were a fantasy owner, he was going to get you 20 home runs, but like 22 RBIs because of the times <laughs> he came in. 
Yeah, that's a good one. But yeah, I think, I mean, I look back five years ago, Rick Porcello won Cy Young. He had 22 wins. Now, that wasn't like a great Cy Young race, so you get it, but he'd probably win it 10 years ago. Uh, there was a note from the IARP case on the Louisville process. Louisville. Realistically, Whoa. we are preparing for this process to continue through the spring of 2022. Now, I updated last Thursday how there will be an update this week, supposedly on the timeline for what's going on with KU, where they just said there will be an update on the case, which who knows what that means, whether it means it's coming soon, whether or not. But that update on Louisville saying they're expecting the process to continue through the spring of 2022 tells me that's going to be the case for KU, and I think that's the best case scenario. As I said on Thursday, you're at a point now where you kind of want to middle this thing. You don't want it to come out right now. You don't want it to come out right before the season when all of a sudden you get a postseason ban for this year after you basically were buyers in the offseason to try to beef up for this year. That would be crushing if all of a sudden it came out this week and then you couldn't make the postseason this year. That would suck for guys like Remy Martin and so forth who came here for last year. So you don't want it to happen now. You don't want it to happen in the season, even if the ban wouldn't occur till. And again, we don't know they'd get a postseason ban, but I'm just kind of assuming with all the violations. Um, but if it occurred in the middle of the season, even if the, the ban didn't occur this year, that'd be a distraction all season long for the team, for Bill Self to have to talk to and everything. So what you want to happen is you want it ideally to happen like the first week after the season's over. Rip the Band-Aid off then. Then you have all the time in the world to deal with it, handle it, but it doesn't affect this specific season. Here's something I, I think about. The, the constant delays. Do you think it's these major reviews or I, I don't know how Louisville is handling these things um, but I do know obviously I followed closely what's going on at KU and one of the big stories that came out was Bill Self has hired his own attorneys who have told the NCAA make sure you keep all your files about this which is basically another way of saying there's a chance we're going to sue you so hold on to these files because they're <laughs> going to be relevant in a potential lawsuit mm -hmm. that's, all, that's all it stands right, right now but Here's what I really wonder. These constant delays, do you think it's because they really need to keep reviewing all these things and keep rehashing and keep going over and keep meeting? Or do you think they're keeping, like, they're like, okay, the, the AARP goes to the NCAA and says, okay, we think this is a suitable, uh, we think this is a suitable punishment. And then the NCAA says, wait, let's check with our lawyers. Could we get overly sued by that? Or no, we don't think that's you know we don't think that's a good enough punishment. But then the IARP says, well, okay, but you also might get sued if it's too harsh. Like, how much is them you know trying to defer or trying to not defer, trying to avoid potential litigation uh, and finding uh, a punishment where the other schools and the coach is just going to take and say, all right, you know, we'll take that versus you know, okay, we've spent all this time, we've got this review committee uh but now because our, our you know it was so harsh now we've got to drop another million dollars in legal fees and and potential have potentially have another north carolina situation where you lose yeah. a bunch of money and you look embarrassed at the end i mean it's definitely a possibility i wouldn't discount that for sure i would probably lean that that's not the case just because of every year like there gets a report published um that's like the ncaa this year spent 39 million dollars in legal fees yeah. arguing against and it's like 
Okay, clearly you don't care about that. What's right. entirely possible, I, I don't know who's on this committee, and, and I'm sorry, that's actually something I should know, but a lot of times these committees are made up of people who have other jobs. Yeah. So it's, it's very possible. I mean, I, I got a little black helicopter conspiracy there with, with that last point. No, I love it's, conspiracy, so I'm all for it. it it's a, it's just, it's, it's probably more possible that what's going on is this committee is having trouble making their schedule work because all of these members of this committee have other jobs. Right. And KU's not the only one in this process. Exactly. Yeah. So they have a ton of things to review. They all have their own day jobs. That's probably more possible than what I just laid out. Could you imagine if that's why it's taken so long? It's just like, all right, we're planning on uh, announcing this on Friday. And then one of the guys in the committee just raised his hand. He's like, oh, Sorry, I got to get to my wife's birthday yeah, on Friday. Exactly. And they're like, all right, fine. We'll reschedule again. How about two weeks from today? And another guy raised their hand. Sorry, it's my daughter's recital. I can't make it. <laughs> Just keep pushing it back. All right, quick notes. Sanderson Farms Invitational. Sam Burns won. Keep inviting hmm. members of that committee to lunch. So they just, sorry, I got another lunch <laughs> yeah. with, with Travis Goff. Dude, this is your ninth lunch this month with him. I'm sorry. It's free lunch. It's what do you want me to lunch. do? free lunch. I'm going to 23rd Street. <laughs> well, Sam Burns can buy a lot of people lunch. He won the Sanderson Farms Invitational 22 under PGA season now in full force. I hate that it literally starts right after it ends. There's literally no time off in between. And Andrew Wiggins has been vaccinated. Turns out getting vaccinated is worth $16 million. That's Case of the Mondays. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. It's about a quarter till five. John Kirby of Jayhawk Slant, Rivals.com, joins us at the top of the five o'clock hour. With Adam Dravetta, Derek Johnson, it is a Monday, which means it's time to overreact. Everything that happened yesterday was the worst or the best. I'll start things off, and then uh, we'll rotate. We each have four downs. First down for me. The Broncos won't even finish with a winning record this year. Is that enough of an overreaction? I mean, I you know, the Broncos keep reminding me of uh, the 2010 Chiefs where they, they've made a few plays. The schedule has smiled on them. I think the, the 2010 Chiefs started with an upset over the Chargers. But that team didn't have nearly as good a well, division. Yeah. But then on top of that... Um, they had they, that following week. They went to a terrible Cleveland Browns team, and then they played a terrible 49ers team. And that's how that team started uh, started um, three and zero. But then on top of that, that Chiefs team got to play the NFC West. That the winner of the NFC West that year went seven and nine. My point is, I think that 2010 Chiefs team looked a lot like a team that would have started three and zero and finished seven and nine. Yeah, if this that's not going to shock me if, at all. If the Broncos. Yeah, I mean, very easy schedule the first three weeks. Giants, who I know they beat the Saints, but Giants are not a very good football team. Jaguars, who might be the worst football team. Jets, again, they won last week, but also not a very good football team. And you're one game against what we deem to be a good football team, or at least a playoff team. The Baltimore Ravens, you lost. It was a game that you weren't even really around in the second half. And Teddy Bridgewater got injured, so that definitely hurts you. But here's the upcoming schedule. They might, I mean, they might not even be 500 after week seven. At Pittsburgh, which Pittsburgh, I don't know what to think of that, but defensively, that's probably a coin flip game. Raiders at home. Raiders have been really good. At Cleveland, I mean, they could lose all three of those games and all of a sudden be three and four. So as great of a start as it was for the Broncos, when you look at having to play, they still have all six divisional opponents left, and I view all six divisional opponents better than that. I mean, they might go one and five in the division. 
It was a nice start for them. I don't really see it continuing for on me. The top, on the topic of the next three, I, I think the only one that you look at where the team is close to their level are the Steelers. And give me uh, give me Tomlin over Fangio and right. the fact that the Steelers are hosting. Yeah, so, and, and as, as bad as Ben Roethlisberger has been this year, is he worse than Drew Locke? Yeah. No? And, you know? And even, you know, so yeah, I, I would I would tend to agree. Um, my over my first overreaction, I am going to say uh, Patrick Mahomes is going to throw fifty-five touchdowns Whoa. this season. He threw fifty in twenty eighteen. I think this Chiefs defense is terrible enough that the offense <laughs> is going to have to keep putting up numbers. Right now, uh, after a game after the first three games, Patrick Mahomes is on pace for fifty-one touchdowns. And right now he's on pace for 59 and a half. So between 59 and 60. Helps with the extra game, I too. I think he winds up between the extra game and the fact that you're going to have to get into boat races with teams. I think Mahomes throws 55 touchdowns. Um, and right now he's on pace for an interception a game. Let's say he adds one more extra. I would take 55 and 18. I was going to say, what would you rather have? 55 and 18 or... 38 and 9. Oh, I'll take not for you're basically giving me 17 more touchdowns for nine more interceptions. Yeah, yeah I'd take that. Yeah. You know, you know what would be funny is if he does that, he gets the 55 touchdowns and then he wins MVP or offense player of the year or something. Interview like, well, what do you contribute your success to? And he's just like, well, you know, got to thank, you know, my parents and I got to thank uh, Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey and the man above. And most importantly, I got to thank my defense because they are so bad that I had to keep passing the ball. Yeah, (laughs) He just thanks them. Okay, my second one, I'm going to stick with the quarterback position. And I mentioned Big Ben. He's not worse than Drew Locke. But what Big Ben is, he might be the worst real starting quarterback in the NFL. What I mean by real starting quarterback is a quarterback who's not starting because of injury. So Drew Locke is going to be starting because of injury. Davis Mills right now for the Texans, really bad against the Bills. But he's starting because of injury. It would be Tarot Taylor. Big Ben is the worst real starting quarterback in the NFL. He was terrible against the Packers. This might be an overreaction, but if you look statistically, he's 28th in the NFL in total QBR. The only quarterbacks who are lower who have qualified in total QBR. Trevor Lawrence, who he's going to be getting better. Zach Wilson, same thing. and made some big plays uh, yesterday. Davis Mills, who, again, I don't consider a true starting quarterback because he's only there because of injury. And Justin Fields, who also is going to get better. I think Ben Roethlisberger is the worst starting quarterback in the NFL. What we're seeing out of Ben Roethlisberger is what we all keep wondering if we're ever going to see out of Tom Brady. (laughs) What we did see out of the 2015 Peyton Manning, who oddly won a Super Bowl. Uh, What we did see out of the 2010 Brett Favre, Um, you know, now, I, I do think Roethlisberger, now he, he was injured last year, right? Yeah. His decline, He's always injured, though. He, that's true. His decline has always been slower. Uh, I always, when when Roethlisberger was at the height of the game and he was able to throw off, because he was not evasive in the sense that he could run around and scramble, but he, was, he could just throw dudes off of him. I always compared it to that scene in The Beauty and the Beast when the wolves are attacking Belle and the beast is out there in the forest trying to save her. And all these wolves are trying to jump on, and they're like slightly harming the beast, but he's still able to just launch him off because he's like five times their size. At the height of his powers, that's what I felt was Ben Roethlisberger. But I think we're seeing 
I just, I think we're seeing what, like I said, I think we're seeing exactly what we keep thinking we'll see someday with Tom Brady, but we haven't. We're seeing what we saw the final year of Peyton Manning, and we're seeing what we saw the final year of Brett Favre. He was great, um, and now he's not. Yeah. Uh, what's your second one? Uh, Pete Carroll will never win another division as an NFL head Ooh. coach, uh, especially with the Seattle Seahawks. Maybe he comes back and coaches another team, wins the division that way. I don't think he wins another NFC West title. I think that is an incredible division. I think the Cardinals, uh, I, I think they're, I now I think more of them than I did last week. If you would ask me last week, I would have thought, yeah, they're probably a legitimate playoff contender. But I thought the Rams were definitively better than them. I don't feel that way anymore. I'm not sure if they're as separated as that score would would uh, would suggest. But I still do think the Rams and the Cardinals are the best team. I think, you know, you've still got a tremendous quarterback in Russell Wilson, but how much longer does he have? They're in a weird, a funky cap situation. Um, he's 804 years old, <laughs> even though he doesn't look it. Uh, I say Pete Carroll's not winning another division, another NFC West. Yeah. Shoot. I mean, what if he gets, you know, the, the Seahawks go 9-8 and eight this year. They barely missed the playoffs. Russell Wilson was unhappy last year. They fire Pete Carroll. And he goes to like, I don't know, what would be an opening possibly? The Chicago Bears. Yeah. And then Justin Fields hits next year. I mean, Jacksonville, I don't think it'll be open next year because I, they gave Urban Meyer a pretty friendly contract. But, man, you know, there'll, there'll be jobs open. All right, my uh, third down one, the Buffalo Bills are the team to beat in the AFC. Um, since week one, they lost to Pittsburgh, which feels very random now. Here's their wins. 35-0, 43-21, and last week 40-0. And I get it. You're playing lesser competition in some of those games, but there is something to being able to beat lesser competition by a lot. And that's something we haven't really seen from the Chiefs. I'm expecting this week they're going to drop minimum 30 points. They might drop 40 points on this Chiefs defense, which is good as the Bills offense is, has been. I think that's a very feasible thing. And then you're basically, if you're the Bills defense, can you hold the Chiefs to 31 points? You know, which if you average 31 points, like the Packers led the NFL in points per game last year at like 31-32. So in theory, if you're the Chiefs and you say, we scored 31 points, you're like, yeah, we did it. That's a good number. But in this game against the Bills, you're going to have to score more than that because I, I don't see any way the Chiefs defense holds them to under 31 points. I think the Bills are going to beat the Chiefs this week. I think the Bills are the best team in the AFC, and I think this is their statement week. Uh, I can't disagree with much of what you just said. I think the the Chiefs have uh, the the advantage at the most important at the two most important places, which is head coach and quarterback. But I don't know that what the, you know. I don't know that that is enough to overcome. You know, the the Bills are actually what I the Bills defense. I think is what a lot of Chiefs fans just hope their defense, which is just fine. That's yeah. all they need. They need them to be fine. Um, you know, if you want to build uh, the 2002 Buccaneers with an offense like that and talk about going 17-0, and and to win a world championship, you know, the, the, the Bills offense, I don't think is at the level of the Chiefs offense, but I think their defense is at a high enough level that that yeah. combined makes them, I mean, it's well, you'd rather You'd rather have a top whatever they, I don't know, top five offense with a middle defense, which is basically what the Chiefs were last year, then you would have the number one offense with the worst defense. 
Yeah, which is what the Chiefs had yeah. in 2018. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, my final overreaction, uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is going to turn into what Kareem Hunt was on Ooh. the field. Uh, now, Kareem yeah. Hunt obviously Careful did, some, with that. did some awful things off the field. But on the field, I think Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is about to turn into uh, what the Chiefs wanted him to be when they took him with the top pick, with their top pick. is the 32nd overall pick. Um I think that his fumble uh, against the Ravens is going to be apropos of the Kareem Hunt fumble in the fir- in his very first carry. The Chiefs ultimately won the game that Kareem Hunt fumbled in, but same concept. I think he wakes up. I think this offensive line is starting to gel. Um, on the topic of the offensive line, I'm still not ready to sit here and tell you that I love the Orlando Brown trade, but between the gelling of the offensive line and Clyde Edwards-Alaire becoming more and more confident and probably a little more angry, after his fumbling, uh, yeah, I, I feel I'll go. I'll take that as an overreaction. Clyde Edwards-Helaire turns out to be uh, what the Chiefs need on offense to match what they were missing when they let go of Green Hunt. He's been really good. Over 100 yards the last two games for Clyde Edwards-Helaire after the issue. And I remember, too, it was 2015-2016. Uh, Chiefs started 1-5, and, and, and one of those losses was to the Bronco, maybe this is the wrong year. I don't know. Uh, they lost to the Broncos on Thursday night football. Yeah, yeah the fumble at the end yep. of the game. Chiefs they had were, no business. Chiefs were one and zero. That began their five. Okay, streak. they had no business losing that game, and they ended up okay after that. So who knows? Maybe they'll uh, be okay after this. I like that one. All right, my last one, and this is a definitive statement. Now we have proof. Tom Brady might have won the game. Bucks might have won the game. Bill Belichick more than Tom Brady. No, I gotta go. That's too much for me. I, 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 and, and look, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be honest. That has a lot to do with me. Just Which team covered the spread? That's fair. I just this has a lot more to do with uh, X's and O's over over Jimmy's and Joe's. Um, and I think the players always matter more than the X's and O's. Look, Bill Belichick. I, I think because the Patriots went seven and nine, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won the World Championship last year. I think people swung the pendulum way too far in Tom Brady's direction. Um, I don't think Tom Brady wins six championships with any other coach, but I don't think Bill Belichick wins six world championships with any other quarterback. Um, Maybe one gets two and the other gets three without the other, Uh, but... I, no, I'm not. I'm not willing to. <laughs> I, I still am leading Tom Brady as far as importance to the Patriots. Patriots much worse roster, and they only lost by two off a missed field goal. I, I think forget the 20 plus years of them playing and, and coaching. You boil it down to the one game, and the Patriots compared to the spread were better than the Bucks, which has to mean there's no other explanation. And I don't want to hear them if if there is. No other explanation has to be Bill Belichick. You can't convince me otherwise. Until at least tomorrow, because then Monday overreaction will uh, have worn off. He's Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Two hours are down. One to go. John Kirby, Jayhawk Slant, Rivals.com. Talk some KU football with us at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. Welcome back in. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson. Along with me, Adam Dravetta. John Kirby of Jayhawk Slant, Rivals.com, joins us now on the show. Uh, John, uh, the the game against Iowa State, it's hard for me to come away with really any big takeaways from that game. Um, 
obviously the score would lead to it obviously being more negative, but is that the type of game that you just kind of throw away the tape and, and move on? I mean, put the blinders on for that one from a fan base perspective and, and just move forward for the long term? Uh, what do you kind of do with that performance that you had against Iowa State where it was 28 nothing early on and then the Cyclones end up winning big? Yeah, Derek, you know, it's. I think that was expected. I mean, what was it, a 34-point in Vegas spread? I mean, listen, it was a bad timing game, okay? Um, Iowa State, you know, was a preseason top-ten team. They were going in there with two losses. They were coming off a loss to Baylor, which when I watched that game, I thought Iowa State was the better team. I mean, they outgained Baylor by 200 yards and kind of pushed Baylor around physically. And you knew that, you know, when Kansas played Baylor, they didn't match up that great physically with Baylor so you're just looking at the game in Ames it's a night game it's national TV and they were going to be up they, they wanted to come back and show everybody that they're that top 10 top 20 type team that everybody had them in the beginning and it's one of those things you, you just walk into a place Derek where they're ready to go and there's just not much K you can do about it you know I thought it was interesting Leipold said he going in he wanted to take good notes and you know learn more about Iowa State's program and probably chat with you know Matt Campbell and figure out you know how they built that thing there and then you know maybe take some of those notes and use them towards your program going forward to figure out how you can you know get some momentum and get in the direction like they they went uh, how, how pivotal do you think this bye week is now uh, for this team and and uh, what do you think it's going to be more focused on? Do you think it is going to be more focused on, you know, getting prepared for Texas Tech and the rest of the Big 12 Slater? Do you think it's going to be internal evaluation? And if it is internal evaluation, uh, how far does that show that they are behind, whereas in, in regular season maybe it would be more uh, about scouting the opponent? Well, Derek, it's a, it's going to be a lot of things. You know, they they said they're going to self scout. Uh, they said they're going to go back and work on fundamentals. They said that they would start putting in some early stages of looking at tech and working ahead. You know, at some point, the coaches, I think Friday and probably Saturday, they're going to get out on the road recruiting. So there's going to be a lot of things. I think Leipold said after the game, his comment was, "There's going to be a lot of balls in the air." So, you know, it's Derek. I don't know. You know, when you when you watch Leipold, you know that he knows he he is doing what he expected. I I don't know that maybe it's to this extent, but I believe he's got a plan, and I believe he's going to follow that. And if you watch him, he always says they're not going to deviate from what they want to do. They're going to go back. They're going to continue to keep working. A lot of the same things that I always remember Mangino used to say when, when he was turning it around, he never got too high. He never got too low. And I just think that, you know, they can work on things to an extent. Okay. You know, on our message board, people go, well, I sure hope they come out and tackle better. Well, listen, I don't know if that's going to get fixed in one by week of practice, but you know, they can go back and focus on some of the fundamentals. Remember these guys had the players for four weeks before they played their first game against South Dakota, okay? If you think about that, you know, I heard Leipold the other day say, they didn't see Jason Bean throw a football till like August 5th or whenever that first day of fall camp was. So they're still learning these guys. They, didn't, they, they haven't had much time to work with them as much as they'd want to. So this is going to be a progression, Derek. This is going to, this is going to take time to get this thing fixed. 
Talking with John Kirby here of Jayhawk Slant on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You know, if you're looking at the offense, obviously you put up seven points in that game against Iowa State. It's, it's hard to come away from it and say that, oh, it was a resounding great effort from the offense. But Devin Neal continued to be established. I think there were times where the running game, where the wide zone game for KU was actually working okay against one of the best defenses in, you know, not just the country, but in the Big 12. Uh, is that the biggest positive from the game that you were able to continue to run the ball well at certain times as you were the game before against Duke, or is there something else that comes to mind? Yeah, no, listen, I think the offensive line has improved. I mean, you go back and remember watching them against, you know, against Coastal, they did some decent things. South Dakota, they just didn't line up and run the ball. They're learning an entirely new system. You know, you've already had... You know, Grunhardt's been out. You've already moved Mike Ford from right tackle to right guard. There's already been some shifting there. You're trying to get the five guys on the same page, and and you're learning the new wide zone. And I think the offensive line has really shown some progress. I think the run game has. I think Jason Bean's shown some progress with the way he can throw the football. I mean, you know, early on you kind of went, wow, you know. How can he find open guys in the vertical passing game? That's gotten better. Obviously, he's hooking up with Trevor Wilson, who's a bright spot. So offensively, there are some things that you sit there and you look at and you go, okay, this can work. This can work. This is working a little bit better. So I think there have been some signs of progress at times along the way. As far as the defense, it's it's been a struggle so far this season ever since the South Dakota game. Is that something you look at and say that, you know, maybe there are certain ways they can improve over the course of the season, or is that something that's going to be more of a long-term fix where it is probably not going to come until there's athletic improvements just inside the program being with uh, Matt Gildersleeve and, and just bringing in new and better recruits? You just said you just said the key, Derek. I, I think over this next year to two years, okay, Gildersleeve will put his stamp on the program. I've talked to a lot of people. He is well-respected. He's well-liked. Um, people say he does a very good job of what he was. But, again, he had June and July to work with the kids, right, because they, did, they left after May when Leipold was hired. They all went home. They reported back in the summer, like the first week of June. So Gildersleeve's only had two months with those guys. Think about that. I mean, it's a new system, new staff, and you had two months with them in the weight room. They, I know there were some gains. I know there was progress there. But this is going to take something that's going to take this off season. It's going to take spring. It's going to take next summer. And it's going to be a combination of things. You know, Gildersleeve getting them stronger, changing a little bit of the mentality of the way they play, and, you know, t- taking some kids and developing, and the infusion of new players coming in over the next year or two. Who's that going to be that could also change the outlook of the roster? Talking with John Kirby for a little longer here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Uh, you can find out all his work at Jayhawk Slant and Rivals.com. You know, the biggest question I have for just, uh, I guess, the immediate future and uh, for this season, and we heard this in the offseason from Andy Kotelnicki, it's a lot easier to instill culture when there's not games being played, when you're not losing games. And specifically, I think you refer to games like this. It's one thing to be able to still get that culture going if you're competitive through a game and and you lose it. But in this one, it's got to be a lot harder talking to the players. Now, I was looking back at Lance Leipold's first season at Buffalo in 2015, 
And they actually had a game where they lost to Central Michigan 51 to 14, and that dropped them to two and four on the season. And they actually bounced back that time and won the very next game 41 to 17 over Ohio. Uh, so is there something about Lance Leipold that makes you think they're going to be able avoid having the players kind of feel lost after the Iowa State game moving forward? Well, just just things I've heard, Derek. He, he he has done a great job with culture and and getting to know his players and a and an open door policy. Now, I don't know if we're gonna we're gonna see that in score in the games, okay? And again, we keep talking about the future, but it's going to be hard to judge those type of things. I believe off this season. Listen, they got Texas Tech next. And Texas Tech, watching them the other day against West Virginia, they looked really good. Okay, I mean, you're watching Texas Tech, and you're like, man, this is going to be tough. And then after that, you really hit a gauntlet. So when you look at the schedule and you look at the opponents, I don't want to say KU is just outmanned, but they're just going to show up in some games. It's going to be hard physically. They match up person for person. So, you know, I think Leipold is going to build this culture. I don't think anybody expected to see massive gains this year based off what we knew was happening and how fast he came in and had to take the job. I just think this is going to be something that that culture is going to be put in over time. And sometimes that's going to take one to two to maybe even three seasons before you look back and see that. Yeah, and I don't even even mean the – the fact that you'd bounce back in terms of being able to win after that, like you did that first year, Buffalo, I just mean it from a standpoint of being able to bounce back and, and not having the team feel like, oh, well, here we go again. Here we're in the same kind of rut we were in the past. And then you mentioned Texas Tech. Do you still view that as a winnable game? Oh, I mean, you know, Derek, I'm assuming, you know, that, that, that Texas Tech will probably be a double-digit favorite, you know, in Lawrence. So, you know, they went into West Virginia, who I think is a pretty good team, and beat them with the backup quarterback. The backup quarterback looked pretty good. Texas Tech defense looked a lot better than I thought they were going to look, than I hoped they were going to look. So, you know, Texas Tech is going to be a tough game, and then it gets a little tougher after that. So when you're Leipold, all you're trying to do is get your kids to play hard, okay? And like I said, when you look at the Baylor game, Derek, it was just – Baylor just pushed KU around. There's some things as a coach you can't control, okay? And some of those things are still physically. When you line up against the other guy, and he's just bigger, better, and stronger right now, you just kind of take your poison. So I think the big thing is, for here on out, is just making sure that your kids show up and they're competing, they're fighting hard, they're playing through four quarters. I went back and watched the fourth quarter against Iowa State. I'll tell you what, KU's players – were still giving max effort. I mean, they were trying. So, you know, they weren't quitting. You, you could go back and watch the film and see some of the blocks they made and some of the some of the speed of, of, of they were going after tackles where you sit there and say, man, these kids haven't quit. They're, they're down by a bunch, but they haven't quit. Yeah, that's, that's the biggest thing I'm looking for for the rest of the season, that and continue to progression uh, from the offensive line. Uh, mention the recruiting stuff and, and being able to bring those guys in in conjunction with Matt Gildersleeve and, and how that'll help. Is there anything on the, the landscape upcoming to be note of for re the uh, recruiting front for KU football? You know, Derek, right now, I, I don't know that there is, and, 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 I, and I don't know this for a fact, but this is what I think they're going to do. Okay, the portal has become such a big thing in college football. I mean, you 
you watch college football and you pay attention to announcers. And I can't tell you how many games last weekend I watched where an announcer would say, hey, great tackle there by that kid. He's a transfer from this school or a transfer from that school. It's amazing how many teams have improved their rosters with the portal. So I think Kansas will use the portal. I think they're going to also have to use the season that's going on right now to evaluate their team, their roster, and then say, all right, we need X amount of guys at this position. We need X amount of guys at this position. I think they're going to have to figure out, and that's what they're doing now, is deciding. So I think, and I've always said this, I think the 2022 class is going to be a mixture of high school football players and transfers or guys from the portal, okay? Kind of a blend because Kansas has a lot of young kids. The last couple classes were built mainly of high school football players, so you have a lot of young guys in the program. So if you hit the portal or you go get a couple junior college players that you like, you can balance that out. And then I think 2023, that is going to be a big high school class. But I think this one here is going to be interesting how it plays out, and I still don't know how it's going to play out, and I don't know if we'll know that till probably around November. All right, John Kirby, before we let you go, we do a thing at the end of our interviews called One Last Thing with Adam. Adam Dravetta, our producer and co-host. Adam, what is your last thing for John? All right, John, one last thing. If you could pick a dinosaur to drive back and forth from work, which kind of dinosaur would you pick? <laughs> Boy, you guys are making me think back to my uh, high school high school days here. Um, I don't know, tired. Tyrannosaurus Rex, does that guy count? Uh, that's, yeah, Too that's, short of arms to drive, though. No, you can reach the wheel. <laughs> that's a good point. Well, no, you could, you could, you could put. Uh, what kind of car is this that holds could, a dinosaur? No, no, no. You are riding the dinosaur to work <laughs> as for <we're here. laughs> I don't know. Hey, I forgot the names of the dinosaurs. Who's the Who's the little strong dinosaur with the uh, with the horns on his end? Triceratops. 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 That's right. I uh, I probably picked Tyron, uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. You've got you've got a lot of uh, you got a lot of, of really good. I think uh, people will avoid you. I don't know if there's necessarily a lot of armor <laughs> on the T Rex. That's right. You but, can get there quick. Exactly, but people will avoid you. That's a good one. <laughs> all right, that's John Kirby. You can check out all his awesome work. Jayhawk Slant Rivals dot com. John, thank you so much for the time. As always, man. All right, guys. Take care. All right, that was John Kirby of JayhawksLantRivals.com joining us on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. With Adam Javetta, I'm Derek Johnson. This is FM 1017 at 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.